The winner is George Roy Hill. At the 1974 Academy Awards, actor Walter Bethau presented the award for Best Director to George Roy Hill, the director of The Sting. I'd like to thank the members of the Academy. I also have a, uh, a bit of advice for my fellow directors, and that's uh, next time out, get a script by David Ward, get a cameraman like the great Bob Surtees, get Marion Doherty to do your casting for you that might include a a Bob Shaw, and pull in a couple of ringers like Newman and Redford, and uh, it helps, believe me. Thank you very much. That Hill gave so much credit to his casting director, Marion Doherty, on the Oscar stage was significant because there wasn't and still isn't an Oscar category for casting. And while casting has always been an essential part of making a film, the job of the casting director didn't always exist. How would you say that Lynn Stallmaster and Marion Doherty contributed to the creation of the role of the casting director? What are some things that people should know about them? They were the pioneers and innovators, and we owe so much to them because they basically, you know, put us on the map and they really fought for it. This is casting director Kim Taylor Coleman. Her film credits include Till, Zola, Black Klansman, and Dear White People. They literally changed the faces we saw on a movie screen and sort of gave birth to the profession of casting directors. You know, it was like film professionals and put a spin on the way characters were written in screenplays, introduced surprise and interesting, innovative ideas to the casting process. So they were the pioneers and the proof was in their work. Welcome to the Academy Museum podcast. Close up on casting. I'm museum director and president and your host, Jacqueline Stewart. In this episode, The Innovators in New Hollywood, how the fall of the studio system led to the creation of the role of casting director as we know it today. There was a level of typecasting or lack of options and choice in the studio system where actors had been under contract to studios for decades and were cast in the same roles over and over again. And when those parameters faded, the populating of movies became open season. Any actor, regardless of with whom they worked before, was available to choose for films. And how Lynn Stallmaster and Marion Doherty defined the profession. We have focused on two casting directors in particular, Marion Doherty and Lynn Stallmaster. These are really the two biggest names who revolutionized the craft after the fall of the studio system. Dara Jaffe is associate curator at the Academy Museum, who co-curated our performance gallery. So during this time, now that the studio heads and studio executives weren't dictating, you know, every casting decision and they didn't have their commodity system of actors in the same way, the role of the casting director becomes much more important, much more influential and much more creative. There was now more of a priority of looking for the interior truth of a character and matching that to the actor who could best meet that, rather than looking at more surface-level attributes. Lynn Stallmaster and Marion Doherty both got started in casting for television in the 1950s. 
Stallmaster in Los Angeles and Doherty in New York. And it was Stallmaster who became the first independent casting director to work in film. But both are now credited for the major shift in film casting that looked beyond physical appearances when it came to finding the right actor for the right role. For Marion Doherty, she has the most incredible collection of casting cards. And her casting cards, these are just, you know, they're three by five index cards. She made a new one for every single person that she ever saw, every actor she ever met with. She has thousands of these cards. The earliest ones are from the 60s. They go all the way up to the early 2000s. She really did practically see everyone who was trying to act during those times. And you can see just how long she had some of these cards because she always, in the top corner, notes what age range they can be cast for. So for some of these actors that, you know, she saw over and over again through the decades, you'll see crossed out when she first meets them, 20 through 30 crossed out, 30 through 40 crossed out, 40 through 50. So you can see for just how long she used these cards. And, you know, for some of them, she's seeing people who are unknown, who are now household names. And it's really interesting to see her insight, to see her reactions. You know, for someone like Matthew McConaughey, she wrote, I'm saying it now, this kid's going to be a star. You know, that kind of stereotypical casting director speak. And of course, she was 100% right. And you see a lot of notes where she might say something like, beautiful, but not plastic. You see not plastic a lot. She was very much looking for real people. One film that's often talked about in Marion Doherty's influential career is Lethal Weapon. You ever met anybody you didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. Well, well, don't do me no favors. It's hard for fans to imagine the 1987 buddy cop comedy or the three sequels that followed it starring anyone else but Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. But there was a time when director Richard Donner didn't see it. When he was working on Lethal Weapon and casting the role that ultimately went to Danny Glover, when Marion Doherty first suggested Danny Glover, he said, but he's Black. This this role isn't written for a Black person. And Marion Doherty said, so? And Richard Donner said it was a really eye-opening moment for him of, He hadn't even considered um, (laughs) that you can have an open mind while casting, that you can have an open mind towards the variety of people who can fill any given role. So that's one difference that Marion Doherty made in Hollywood. Again, coming from a climate where certain actors and especially actors of color were often designated towards very specific roles. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson... (laughs) The off-cited example in the case of groundbreaking casting director Lynn Stallmaster is The Graduate. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. (laughs) Aren't you? For Lynn Stallmaster, we have his casting notes when he was casting The Graduate. It's a 1966 memo from Stallmaster to director Mike Nichols and producer Lawrence Terman. For the character of Elaine, along with Catherine Ross, who ultimately got the role, there are about 40 more options, including Mia Farrow and Leslie Ann Warren. For Mrs. Robinson, along with Anne Bancroft, who was, of course, cast for the role, the memo also lists actresses Olivia de Havilland, Maureen O'Hara, Ava Gardner, Vivian Lee, 
and Lana Turner, among others. But for Benjamin, the lead role famously played by Dustin Hoffman, his name is nowhere to be found. Lynn Stallmaster spoke publicly about the search for the main character of Benjamin in The Graduate, who, of course, ultimately was played by Dustin Hoffman. But in the source novel, he's described as more of a waspy character. He's tall, he's blonde, he's traditionally good-looking. So Lynn Stallmaster started by looking for that type, and he was auditioning people like Robert Redford. And he said nothing worked, so he experimented and started looking outside of the physical description. And when he found Dustin Hoffman, who at that point was basically unknown, he's short, he's brunette, he's of course Jewish, so he is not waspy looking. And Stallmaster joked that on the inside, uh, Benjamin was a Jew. He was, he was Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was the best person for that role. And it is also interesting to note that Lynn Stallmaster was the first casting director to receive a lone title card credit in the opening credits of a film. So you can really see how it's taken longer for casting directors to receive recognition, even literally in getting their, you know, their due credit on the screen. What Marion Dougherty in New York and Lynn Stolmaster in Los Angeles did was to bring fresh perspectives to the characters that had often been played with familiar tropes and gave opportunities to actors that had done great work in the theater but had never worked in film. This is casting director David Rubin. His credits include My Cousin Vinny, The English Patient, Men in Black, and My Best Friend's Wedding. He is former president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And early in his career, he worked with Lynn Stallmaster. So they were able to give opportunities to actors that were fresh on the screen. And they had a knack for using actors that had played certain roles their entire careers and using them in fresh and different ways which kind of reinvigorated them as artists and resulted in tremendous performances. They also were extremely sympathetic and in sync with the actor's mindset and created environments where actors felt really free to experiment and do, do good work. And they were smart about character and story so that they, you know, engaged with filmmakers in a dialogue that was stimulating and made real differences. And I think, you know, filmmakers started to flock to them. Coming up, more on casting innovators Marion Doherty and Lynn Stallmaster. We're the only people in the main titles that don't get Oscars. In a perfect world, Lynn Stallmaster, he and Marion Doherty, they would have had multiple Oscars, not just one. These people put together some of the most iconic casts of film history. Marion had the job there first for, God, many years, and then I came in after that. This is casting director Laura Kennedy. The job she's talking about is executive vice president of casting at Warner Brothers. It's a position she held from 1999 to 2018. Marion Doherty had held the job before her since 1979. I came in right as we were starting Harry Potter, right as we were finishing Matrix. Her other connection to Marion Doherty was that she'd come up under one of Marion's protégés. 
there were three people that worked for Marion, Gretchen Rennell, Wally Nasita, and Juliet Taylor. And then there's casting directors now who have spawned for each one of those women. And so I worked for Wally. It was the Marion family tree. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really nice way to put it. And um, I'm just curious about sort of how that lineage, right, Laura? Like when you look at what you learned from Wally, what Wally learned from Marion, what would you say are some of those family qualities that you gained, you know, that you learned from that line? Well, I think in the early days, it was really like all about like how to spot a really talented actor, like how to look at someone's training, to look at someone's ability, where did they come from? Taking into consideration someone's training and their education as a really important part, because back then it was important. Back then somebody went to Yale, Northwestern, Juilliard, and you would have the league auditions and all the casting directors would go with the agents and you'd see the new crop of trained actors. And there were people that weren't trained that were kind of, you know, had something about them. But our emphasis always was kind of trying to find the best actor, trying to spot that really versatile, well-trained actor. And I do have to tell you that that time when I was, was Wally was working next to Marion at Warner's in the 80s when we went over, I think it was, I want to say like 85 when I was there, when Marion would leave to go to lunch, the other assistant and I would go in and we would get those index cards out and we would read them and we would go through them and just howl at the things that she had written or the thing like Robert Redford, cute kid has potential. You know, we would go through them and I can tell you the hours that we spent with those index cards laid out on the floor going, oh my God, there's Gene Hackman. Wait, there's Dustin Hoffman. Oh my God. You know, uh, Warren Beatty, like it was fantastic history lesson for us to be able to actually hold the cards and read the cards. And we would literally do that every lunch when she would leave. We're like, let's go get the cards. The last time, Barbara Graham, come out. Keep your hands above your head. When Lynn Stolmester cast I Want to Live. You heard me, Graham. Hands above your head. Again, this is casting director David Rubin. The film that starred Susan Hayward, that took place largely in a prison and, and his finding authentic feeling and looking prisoners and prison guards and, you know, people thought that they were watching a documentary and his instinct for capturing the truth in performance on film brought some of the great filmmakers in history to want to work with him. And likewise, Marion, who started in live television in New York, she had access to all of these great theater performers and she lassoed them into their first performances on celluloid and ended up, you know, discovering so many of the great, the great actors. And each of those in turn, Marion and Lynn, began a, a sort of legacy of hiring young casting directors to work with them who learned from them. I'm honored to say that I was one of Lynn's protégés and I learned tremendously from his approach, which is based on being completely open to all possibilities. When did you start working with Lynn? How did that come about? I was working in New York as a casting director, and occasionally in Los Angeles, when somebody was having trouble 
finding a particular role, I would get a call to see if I could help locate the answer for them, which usually involved holding open calls, you know, giant open auditions where anybody could show up. And I would, you know, see hundreds and hundreds of people with lines around the block just to try to find diamonds in the rough. And um, on two occasions, Lynn Stallmaster's office had called me looking for help on particular roles. One was a a comedy that starred Michael Keaton called Mr. Mom, where they were having trouble finding one of the one of the boys in the family that Michael Keaton was looking after. And uh, another was a movie called Class that starred uh, Jacqueline Bissett and Rob Lowe. And they were looking for Rob Lowe's best friend. Uh, they were having real difficulties. And I held an open call in New York and a young NYU student Andrew McCarthy came in and uh, he hadn't intended to audition, but anyway, he got the role. So I was, I had solved two problems for the, for Lynn Stallmaster. And when an, when an, an opening happened in his office, I got a phone call saying, have you ever considered moving to Los Angeles? The answer was no, <laughs> but it was Lynn Stallmaster who had cast some of the, my favorite films of all time from the graduate to Judgment at Nuremberg to Tootsie. I mean, the, it, the, the list is endless and impressive. And um, he sent me a plane ticket. Uh, I flew out for a meeting with him. And after one day of long conversation, he offered me the job. He gave me a little stipend to buy my first car because I was living in Manhattan. This was uh, in 1983. And I moved to Los Angeles and worked with Lynn for... A number of years as an associate in his office and then ultimately we were partnering on film and um, we remained closest friends until his death not too long ago and tremendous inspiration but a but a, a dear dear friend and i learned so much from that man what would you say his philosophy was when it came to casting i have unashamedly adopted his philosophy which was really his his favorite word, which was open. It's, it's the key word in the process. It's, it's not only our being as, uh, as a casting director being open to possibilities, but it's to urge our filmmaker companions and colleagues to be open as well. Because he was endlessly curious and intrepid about seeing what was around the corner. And he had instincts about it. When he was casting Fiddler on the Roof, he, he was looking for a Russian actor to play a key role in it. And he just had a, an inkling that, that, that he was going to find that person in Paris. Nobody knows why, but he ended up meeting a bunch of actors, a Russian actor there who ended up, you know, getting the role. He would, you know, fly around the world to, to meet actors internationally when I think it was, you know, more challenging certainly than it is now. And, um, he was just endlessly curious and open and uh, had tremendous compassion, was a great actor himself, and gave tremendous support to the actors who auditioned for him, with him, which I think also prompted me to spend as much energy and attention I do to my contribution to a scene with an actor, because it's what I learned from Lynn. Never in my wildest dreams did I... Imagine that I would be standing here. 
Now, Lynn Stallmaster received an Honorary Academy Award in 2016. You never know where or when you will find the answer. And I found the answer in some very strange places. <laughs> and I wonder if you could reflect on that moment, what it meant for him, his own thoughts about his legacy, and what it meant for you and other casting directors. I very much led the charge in trying to convince the Academy's Board of Governors to bestow what was the first Oscar ever given to a casting director, honorary or otherwise. I love you, Lynn. I don't know if Oprah Winfrey's in the house, but this is what she would call a full circle moment. <laughs> um, on behalf of my fellow governors, Laura Kennedy and Bernie Telsey, and the entire casting directors branch, we salute you as a pioneer. We thank you for setting the bar high. And to the first casting director in the history of the Academy to receive an Oscar, we say congratulations. It was a wonderful experience to try to articulate why it was deserved and to be specific about what a great casting director does to make a difference in a film. So it was not only a personal mission for a dear friend, but it was uh, an, very important for me to, even though the Board of Governors of the Academy are, are filmmakers and film collaborators at the top of their game, the exposure that they've had to the casting process has been by and large minimal by dint of, of when they enter the filmmaking process and the people that they encounter. So to engage them in a conversation about what one of the best casting directors has done for film was a wonderful opportunity to talk about my own profession and my feelings about it. And, you know, truthfully, when you are sitting in a movie, theater and looking at that screen, I'm hoping that it's the actors you're focusing on because they're the, they are the purveyors of the story. And what could be more important than that? So the person that has an impact on who those actors are, I mean, you, all you have to do is imagine your favorite film and then imagine it with a completely different set of actors. It's inconceivable. So the ability to create an ensemble that is indelible, that is, that is inextricably linked to your experience of watching that particular movie, is an art form. It's an art form like all the other collaborators in motion pictures. So to have that conversation with the Board of Governors and have it be respected and heard and result in that award was tremendously gratifying for me. And of course, you know, Lynn, who at that point was essentially retired, but, you know, has a filmography that is moving to even just read, let alone to conjure up your experiences of seeing those, those films. Um, he was enormously touched, incredibly moved, and it was, uh, you know, wonderful to share it with him. For this episode of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. 
I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. And be sure to stop by the Performance Gallery to learn more about the history of casting and to see the artifacts we talked about in this episode in person. They include Marion Doherty's notes on actors she met, actors' screen tests, and Lynn Stallmaster's notes from the casting of films like The Graduate and Fiddler on the Roof. The Academy Museum Podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Monica Bushman. Our other producer is Victoria Alejandro. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.